wanted this suitcase so everybody could call me the tall Texan. <laughs> My name is Mary and I am an alcoholic. I'm Mary. And I have been sober long enough to be called an old timer. Now when I first came into AA over 30 years ago, uh, if you were sober 10 years, they could, you could call yourself an old timer. And there was a man at our club that could, nobody could stand him. I kind of liked him, but I was new in AA. <laughs> but they knew if he got to be called an old-timer, they just couldn't live with him. So they decided they'd up it to 15 years. Well, <laughs> it looked like LP was going to make 15 years, so they upped it to 20 years. Well, somehow or another... Before the 20 years was up, we lost our lease and gave up the club. And But, you know, I have often wondered whatever happened to L.P. But I do hope that he stayed sober and outlived them S.O.B.s at Travis. <laughs> <laughs> I want to tell you about my medallions that I'm wearing. This is my gold medallion that my sponsor, Willie B. of Spring, Texas, gave me on my 30th AA birthday last April. Thank you. It has a state of Texas on it. It has three X's, and it says sobriety born in Texas. <laughs> and this medallion, now there's a little story attached to this. Did any of you ever see the best little whorehouse in Texas? <laughs> Starring Dolly, Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds? Well, I tell you, that was a true story. There was a famous whorehouse at LaGrange, Texas, called the Chicken Ranch. And it was, uh, it'd been in business over a hundred years. And it was known all over the world. And it was located between, pretty close to the University of Texas and Texas A&M, and it was a money-making machine. <laughs> and I had had my beads for, se and anyway, a big old, uh, old uh, TV personality in Houston accused the sheriff of taking a bribe to keep the chicken ranch open and in all the publicity that ensued, they had to close the chicken ranch. Now, there are some people in Texas that thought the chicken ranch should have been made into an historical monument. <laughs> and I have also heard that grown men cried when they closed the chicken ranch. <laughs> also, some wives. <laughs> Well, I had had my beads a couple of months, and I looked and worn them two or three times, and I looked down one day, and I saw this medallion with a chicken and a rooster card on it. And uh, when I read what was on this my medallion, I always say this little prim, gray-haired woman nearly fainted. Now, I ain't prim, I just look prim. But on one side of my medallion, it says the chicken ranch, LaGrange, Texas, and on the other side, it says good for all night. <laughs> and I have been sober since April the 21st of 1964, one day at a time. Thank you. And this miracle of sobriety, this amazing grace, is because of a divine and loving providence my two beloved sponsors, Gloria and Lee, 
H and because of people, except the fellowship of people exactly like you. Now, I grew up in the West Texas town, a little oilfield town called Breckenridge, and I always tell these Yankees it's deep in the heart of Texas. <laughs> and uh, my mother and father were the social leaders of the church group in this little town, and uh, they entertained a lot. But being good Baptists, they didn't drink alcohol and they didn't serve alcohol. But they weren't for it and they weren't against it. And my little friend's parents at the country club set drank alcohol and served alcohol, and it was all right. And I grew up in my formative years thinking alcohol was a beverage. And the good Lord knows it ain't no soda pop. <laughs> it is a mood-altering chemical formula, and it was so toxic to me it almost cost me my life. Now, I am married, and you know, do any of y'all know any of the marrying kinds in AA? There are some. There's one man back in Houston, had been sober a long time, had already been married 11 times. And I sponsor a woman that has been married 8 times. And I heard about a man in West Virginia that said he had jars of peanut butter that lasted longer than some of his marriages. <laughs> you know, I will never know what joys I missed, what, what, what ecstasy might have been mine, because all of my life I have been married to the same husband one day at a time. <laughs> I am the mother of two grown sons, and I thank God every day they're grown and raised. <laughs> you taught me when I was teachable that I could not live my son's lives, that the only life I could live was my own. And as a result of this, I let go of these boys, and they lived their lives and tended their business. I left my life and tended my business, and we have a pretty good relationship. Now, I am a grandmother. But I ain't the babysitting kind of grandmother. <laughs> I tell you, the idea of baking cookies and entertaining grandchildren is just not in... I just didn't want to spend my day that way. And I belong to an old and honorable profession. I am a housewife. Now, I am not a, me <laughs> I am not a member of the oldest profession. <laughs> it's a damn good thing. <laughs> Considering my mean personality and how ugly I looked, I would have starved to death. <laughs> I took my first drink when I was a senior in high school, and it ended in complete disaster. I, it was a group of people. They were all college kids. I was the only high school kid there, and oh, I was so smug and so proud of myself. And somehow or another, I ended up drinking three great big old tall drinks and tasted just like grape juice. I mean, grapefruit juice. And anyway, after those three drinks, I got drunk, I got sick, I started throwing up on everybody just like a flamethrower. <laughs> and this was such a bad trip for me that I didn't drink anything for the next eight to ten years. And in that ten years, I'd married, and I was the mother of these two small sons, and we were buying a new used home and a new used car all on one salary. And there wasn't enough money left over for me to have help with my housework. And I had an awful lot of housework to do, and I hated housework. You know, Irma Bombeck says, housework, if it's done right, can kill you. 
what I felt about housework like this little hippie bride. She told her best friend, she said, Oh, housework is such a drag. She said, You wash the dishes and make up the beds, and three weeks later you have to do it all over <laughs> One, e- one evening I was trying to wade through a, bi- uh, through a big ironing. And back in those days you had to iron everything but the underwear and the socks. And a friend came by and suggested a cold beer. And when I drank that beer that afternoon, alcohol did something for me, something wonderful for me. First of all, it made me feel like a million dollars, and it gave me energy. And on two beers, I got through that ironing and had dinner on the table, and I thought, I have found the answer. Oh, dear. That's when my alcoholism kicked in, but I didn't know it. And I started drinking two to four beers a day to get through my housework, four to six beers a day, six to eight beers a day. I had the cleanest house in Houston. (laughs) I even put newspapers under the cuckoo clock. When I got up to eight, when I got up to eight to ten beers a day, that's when I decided I'd switch to bourbon. And incidentally, back in those days, you could get six ice cold beers for a dollar. That was cheaper than a maid any time. <laughs> but when I, after I switched to bourbon, that's when I started having a personality change. Did any of you ever have a personality change when you drank? Well, I want to tell you about mine. Mine was so dangerous and so bizarre that my family had to take the firing pins out of all the guns in the house. Because when I would uh, get on a mean drug and they would argue with me or they would accuse me, especially my husband would accuse me of being drunk, I would be, oh, I'd grab the gun and I'd try to shoot him. (laughs) And, you know... If he hadn't been an alcoholic, the first time I shot at him, he would have left me flat. He would have quit me right there. But anyway, um, and uh, so they got to where they'd hide the guns from me, and they also called them my spells, you know, when Mother was going into a spell or something. And, and I had lots of spells. <laughs> and But I could always find the guns. Then they got to where they locked up all the ammunition from me in a, out in the truck house under a great big lock. Well, they had me fall for a while. But one morning I got up to fix breakfast and get my husband off to work and these two boys off to school. One of them was in kindergarten. And um, I was waiting for it to get straight up 9 o'clock, watching the clock on the mantel. And as soon as it got 9 o'clock, I could go to the liquor store, which took about 15 minutes. And many a morning I had gotten to the liquor store before it opened and I would be standing out there with all those winos and those weirdos. <laughs> and this was humiliating to me. And if I waited 15 minutes till 9, if I waited till 9 o'clock, I could get to the liquor store, go in there like a lady, and buy my two or three half of old, of old crow and come on home. And while I was waiting for the clock to slowly get to 9 o'clock, I remembered how mean they had been to me the night before, especially my husband. And there's lots of times my husband needed shooting, believe me. (laughs) But anyway, he had been so mean to me and he wouldn't let me shoot him. (laughs) 
and I thought, well, I know just what I'll do. I'll start back by the hardware store and I'll buy my own ammunition, <laughs> which I did. And I didn't buy ordinary shells. I bought hollow points. <laughs> now, this is ammunition that is not designed to wound or to wing. It is designed to devastate because when it hits an object, it opens up and it just tears a big hole right through the object, whatever it hits. And this little, this nice little wife and mother came home for the, from the hardware store with several boxes of devastating ammunition. <laughs> but I knew what they would do if they discovered what I had done, so I started hiding these shells. And I hid them upstairs and downstairs and under the stairs and in the carpet and in the dress. Any place I could think to hide 15 or 20, I did. And you know, after I had outsmarted an alcoholic husband, and two small sons, I felt real smug. And nothing uneventful happened for several months. And I didn't always get mean. You know, sometimes I got drunk and loved everybody, and sometimes I got drunk and just uh, was energetic and cleaned the house, and sometimes I got drunk and just peacefully passed out. But I never knew what was going to happen to me. But one afternoon, my husband and these boys were out in the backyard, and they were pitching horseshoes, and they were having such a good time. And I was in the house uh, getting in one of my mean spells. And what I, my husband is a beer alcoholic. And what I was doing, I was drinking his beer, and then I'd go in my bedroom and take two or three slugs of Old Crow and come back and chase it with his beer. Now, I want to tell you here tonight, I drank so much Old Crow before I got here that that is exactly what I looked like 30 years ago. <laughs> I'm just glad I didn't drink old granddad. <laughs> oh, wild turkey. <laughs> My husband came in to get a beer and he looked at me and he says, Mary, how in the hell can you be so drunk on two beers? I looked up at him so innocent-like. I said, I don't know. It must be my metabolism. <laughs> I didn't know what that meant, but he didn't know what that meant. That's what's important. So he got a beer and went outside. And I, Anyway, about that time, this old mean spell, I got mad at him for asking me that. So I decided I was going to shake them up a little bit. So I got my twenty-two automatic rifle that I had won in a poker game one night when I was drunk. And I wouldn't play I wouldn't play poker sober, and it got to where they wouldn't play with me if I wasn't sober. So that ended the poker games right there. And uh, I got my 22 automatic rifle, and I loaded it with oh I don't know half a dozen shells, and I went out on the back porch. Now I wasn't going to shoot them; I was just going to shake them up a little bit. So I went out and fired into the ground two or three times. Beep beep. And I did accomplish my purpose. You never saw a covey of quail scattered away. <laughs> you know, one went east and one went west and one went over the cuckoo's nest. <laughs> and they started catcalling. You know, one ran behind a boat shed and one ran behind a great big oak tree and one ran behind the side of the house and they were catcalling. What in the world had happened to me? And they came to two conclusions. The first conclusion, that gun was loaded. And the second conclusion was, so was I. 
so it was after this they started taking the firing pins out of all the guns in the house. And you know, one of the most insidious phases of this disease of alcoholism is that in some cases we turn against those that we love and need the most. And there isn't a man in this room that got drunk and abused his wife and children that I can't identify with. But you know, it was after this when I felt threatened. And in my insanity, I felt threatened lots of times. I would revert to the butcher knives and the meat cleavers and the ice picks. Many morning I've gotten up to fix breakfast for my family. And they wouldn't, I'd open the knife drawer and there wouldn't be a knife, a beer opener, ice pick, or anything in that drawer with a point or an edge on it. And I would make that long, slow walk down to my son's bedroom, never knowing what I was going to find. But I checked them out, and they were all right. And, oh, you'll, you'll never know the gratitude I felt. But when I have found these butcher knives and this great big meat cleaver up under their pillows, I would know I had just been dreadful the night before. And I'd reach up under there to get a butcher knife so I could finish breakfast, and I'd walk back to the kitchen with the heaviest heart and the sickest soul of any woman you have ever known. And I'd put these knives in the sink and I'd run some water over them. And I had a window over my kitchen sink and it always faced out toward the east. And always about this time the sun was rising. And I know I'd look out that window and I thought, if there is a God, he's in the sunrise. And I'd look out there and I'd say, my God, my God, I have done it again. What is the matter with me? I didn't know I had a disease called alcoholism that was causing this insane behavior. And this remorse and this guilt and this low self-image that I was causing, creating, it just, this is when the suicide attempts came into play. I tried to commit suicide so many times it just got to be old hat at our house. One evening my husband came in from work and he looked up on the gun rack and he says, Mary, where is my shotgun? And I said, it is upstairs. And he said, well, what's it doing upstairs? And I said, well, I was planning to kill myself. And he brushed past me and said, what, again? And once I jumped out of a car going 80 miles an hour and I nearly skinned myself alive, but I didn't break any bone. Before I jumped out, there were big old slabs of concrete, big old chunks of broken glass, and I just bounced over all of it. And I spent eight days in the hospital. And I still have some scars from that little incident. But after this, you know, I knew that one of these days I was going, the law of averages was going to catch up with me, and I was going to kill myself. And I didn't want to die. I just didn't want to live this sick way I was living. So this is when I thought I would go to the doctor and let him find out what is wrong with me. And this was the beginning of my prescription phase of my alcoholism. And before it was over, I took energizers, stabilizers, tranquilizers, barbiturates, and a lot of narcotics. As a matter of fact, I took the whole drug spectrum. It wasn't odd at all for the druggist to call me and say, Mrs. Moncrest, there is a new prescription on the market. I thought perhaps it might help you. <laughs> And I'd say, well, Mr. Blake, you just send it out. Now, I never smoked pot, I never snorted cocaine, and I never shot heroin for three reasons only. That's the medical profession, the pharmaceutical company, and the liquor industry. With these three organizations going for me, I didn't need anything else to help get me through the day. <laughs> and uh, this doctor was interviewing me, and they interview you now, you know, you 
used to, they interviewed you. Now you have to fill out a bunch of forms, and he glances at it. But anyway, and I told him, I said, I drink nearly every day, and nearly every day I get drunk. I might even be an alcoholic. And he looked across at me across that desk and smiled, and he said, Nonsense. A nice little woman like you couldn't be an alcoholic. <laughs> and I agreed with him 100%. <laughs> I didn't even know what an alcoholic was, and neither did he. But he was alarmed about my suicide attempt, which he attributed to depression. I don't know about you, but I was always depressed when I... First of all, I always woke up with a hangover. And then I really got depressed if I had drunk everything up the night before. <laughs> so he put me on a weekly series of vitamin and hormone shots, and he put me on the amphetamine drug, which is the pet pill. Did any of you ever have any amphetamines, any pet pills? And um, this, this uh, amphetamine is wonderful medication if it's used right. It is used for weight loss, and it's also used for depression. Now, in the weight loss, what it does, it jazzes up your thyroid and gives you a lot of energy. It depresses the appetite centers in your brain, and you don't get hungry, so you get around all day and don't eat, ergo, you lose weight. But if you abuse these amphetamines the way I did, you will also lose some of your marbles. <laughs> but I can remember within 30 minutes after taking that first pet pill, I thought I had been reborn. <laughs> oh, I tell you, it was glory hallelujah. And it didn't, it didn't depress my appetite. It made me hungry. And oh, I was just delighted with how well I felt. And when my husband came in from work that night, the boys met him at the door and they said, Daddy, guess what? Mama feels good. <laughs> that was such a rare thing around there. And once again, I thought I had found the answer. But this wonderful medication had a bad drawback to it. I was so exhilarated and happy, I couldn't sleep. <laughs> And after a couple of three nights of not resting at all, practically, I called the doctor to tell him about this. And uh, his first words were, we sure do want you to sleep. And he sent me my first prescription for the sleeping tablet. So I was getting up in the morning and taking the pep pill, and I was taking the sleeping tablet at night. The icebox is still full of beer, and I'm still alcoholic. And I reach in there, and I start drinking, and I start losing control. And I called the doctor about this. And he is of the opinion that the speed run of the amphetamine needed to be slowed down. And he told me there is a brand new drug on the market called a tranquilizer. And he said, I will send you a prescription, which he did. And the bottle had the magic words on there, take as needed. <laughs> So I was getting up in the morning and taking the pep pill. I was taking the tranquilizer through the day. I was taking the sleeping tablet at night. And being addictive, it wasn't long at all till I was doubling, tripling, quadrupling all this medication. In the meantime, I'd been going every week to get my vitamin and hormone shots. And the icebox is still full of beer. And as an alcoholic, it is as normal for me to drink as it is for me to breathe. And I reached in there and I started drinking. And that, when I started combining alcohol with all this medication, 
it was taking a dreadful toll of me in every area. Uh, my naturally curly hair became limp and stringy. I went around cross-eyed a lot in those days. I know I peeled potatoes sitting in the middle of the floor with one eye closed. And uh, I had a yellow, I had a green cast to my complexion with undertones of yellow. I had lost five pounds on my reducing medicine. Now, if this isn't bad enough, skinny, cross-eyed, and green. <laughs> I was growing fine hair on each side of my face <laughs> and a very prominent mustache across my upper lip. Now, if I had been growing horns and a tail, my family would not have said a word to me because they wouldn't want to do anything to upset Mother. <laughs> but one day I had to go someplace and uh, I had to fix my face. And this is when I made an amazing discovery. You can't powder your face if you have a beard. <laughs> I looked through that haze of powder and I thought, surely I am not supposed to be growing a mustache. And I took myself out to the doctor's office just as fast as I could get out there. And while I was waiting for him to come in and see this apparition that I had turned into, I thought, well, you know, I can, I have two choices. I can kill myself or I can start shaving every day. Horrible thought. <laughs> and he came in and took one look at me and he said, honey, I'm not worried about that on your face. It's caused from the hormone shots. He said, I want to know if you're growing any hair on your chest. This is the most insulting thing anybody ever asked me in my whole life. <laughs> I started unbuttoning my blouse, and when I got to this button, the full import of what he had asked me hit me, and I was blazing mad. And I looked up at him, I said, I don't know, you son of a bitch, but, but I better not be. <laughs> You never saw a monkey looking for fleas the way I was trying to find one. But I was spared that indignity. But on the way home from the doctor, it took about six weeks for that to finally clear up. But on the way home from the doctor's office, I swore up and down I was never going to drink again, ever again. And I damn sure quit those hormone shots right then. And incidentally, you guys, don't quit your primer or your hormone shot. This was some kind of a devilish bunch of hormones this, this doctor gave me. And I was just, I had a firm resolve that I was never going to drink again. And within 30 minutes, I was drinking again, and I didn't know what had happened to me. Well, it was along about this time, they were writing a lot of articles in the magazines and the, and the newspapers about the disease of alcoholism and about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I just, I, I just couldn't read enough about alcoholism. And uh, I thought, I'll go to the library and research this. In case I ever get alcoholism, I'll know what it is. <laughs> and at the library, they had two books on alcoholism. One was a book entitled, Drinking is Not the Problem. And this was about a man 
that he lived with a woman for 10 or 11 years and he got drunk every day because he was married to her and he quit her and he, when he'd written this book he'd been sober over two years and he hadn't had a drink hadn't, hadn't had a drink in over two years and you know you know which book I read first and that book was the book of Alcoholics Anonymous so you know which book I read first I read this about this man and I thought you know that's all, I know what's the matter with me. It's just living with Lenore that I'm acting this way. I'll just quit him and I'll get all right. Right behind that came another little thought. I thought, Lord, if I quit Lenore, I'll have to go to work. <laughs> and I had sense enough to know I was totally unemployable. But in reading the big book, they said uh, alcoholism was, uh, you know, it was physical, it was mental, and it was spiritual. And I thought, well, that's what's the matter with me. I haven't been to church in years. I'll go back to church, and this is gonna, everything's going to be all right. And I went back to church, and I still got drunk. I got special counseling from the big ministers downtown in Houston, and I still got drunk. They didn't know anything about alcoholism either. But they would pull my hand and say a prayer for me before I left, and I'd think, oh, I'm going to be all right. And driving home, I'd pass a liquor store, and that car just went in there, and they was off and driving again, and I didn't know what I was going to do. Now, the only weekend in all of our drinking, my husband was, had to go down to San Antonio for a weekend, and it was a cold February, rainy, and I was in the back of the house drinking and passing out, and the kids were in the front of the house, and they, we had an agreement. If they left me alone, I'd leave them alone. And about 6 o'clock I woke up, and all I was eaten up with remorse and guilt and shame. And I thought, I'll cook these boys something good to eat. I'll make up a little bit. And I went in the icebox, and I picked up an egg, and I dropped it on the floor. And I reached in the icebox and got another egg, and I dropped it on the floor. And every time I tell this story, I can still feel those eggs between my toes in that kitchen. And I looked down at those two eggs splattered all over the kitchen floor, and I thought, Lord, I'm too drunk to cook. I'll take the boys to the drive-in. I'm not too drunk to drive. <laughs> and coming back from the drive-in, I missed my driveway, and I got stuck in my ditch in front of my house. And it had been raining for days, and every time I try to get out, I just get in deeper. And I started having a wall-eyed cat fit. The boys ran next door. Now, I had a, we lived on a dead-end street, and there were four other families on this street. And our children played together and went to school together. And uh, the bus didn't come down there, and none, none of these women could drive. So I took the kids to school and picked them up every day, sick, well, drunk, sober. didn't make any difference, and nothing happened, thank God. But anyway, I liked the, and one of these women said she had never touched a drink in her life. I'll tell you here tonight, I don't trust anybody that's never touched a drink. <laughs> And, but I could stand them pretty good sober, but when I was drunk and in a rage, oh, I despised them. And I got out of my car with the rain falling down on me, and I started cussing these women. I cursed them. I called them everything in the books I could think of. And when I was drunk and in a rage, I had the vocabulary of a mule skinner. And then came the dawn. The house was cold. The back door was open. I went to close it. The front door was open. I went to close it, and I saw my car out in the ditch, and I thought, oh, my God. And I knew. I remembered the women, and I knew what I had to do. And I went around the next day, and I told them that 
I had been drunk the night before. I was ashamed of myself, and I asked them to forgive me. Now, after that first doctor, I went around to several doctors, and several of the doctors had suggested that perhaps a psychiatrist might help me. But I wasn't willing to go to a psychiatrist till this happened. As a matter of fact, this is the first time my drinking had gone outside the confines of my home or my yard for a long time. My husband and my husband's job, we were invited to a lot of cocktail parties and openings and things like that, and I would always start a scene with somebody. It was just in one night, one night I started a bad scene, and he drugged me out of there and brought me home, and he says, Mary, I will never take you out in public again because you're going to get me killed. And, you know, he didn't take me out. for I've been sober almost three years before he trusted me enough to take me out. That old boy, hey, he knew. But anyway, uh, the next morning, I, on Monday, I called a psychiatrist and made an appointment. And the next day was Tuesday, and I was in his office at 8 o'clock Tuesday morning, and I was every bit of 32 years old. And this psychiatrist, uh, we, after we talked and visited, and he made a decision to put me in Herman Hospital to take a series of insulin shock treatments. He wanted me to take 60, but we couldn't afford but 30 that much. But before I got to AA, over a period of about 15 years, I had almost 100 shock treatments, not electric shock treatments, insulin shock treatments. And these, these shock treatments are brutal. I'm, I don't even know if they still do that now. But anyway, the psychiatrist would come in every night and talk with me, and every morning we just got to be real good friends. And I'd been in there about three weeks, and he came in one morning and he says, Mary, I have some real good news for you. He said, you are not an alcoholic. You know, that's two doctors that said I wasn't an alcoholic. And uh, I wasn't happy with this diagnosis, but it's all that I had. And incidentally, I gained 20 pounds in the hospital in 30 days. And uh, I had to borrow clothes to get home in. And I hadn't been home six weeks till I'd lost all that weight, and I was right in the same old six and seven, and I didn't know what I was going to do. Well, one of, but after this, though, I tried a chiropractor, I tried a psychologist, I tried mental health association people, I tried hypnotism, I tried faith healers. I would have embraced any creed or any cult to have gotten well of whatever this was that was killing me, and uh, nothing was nothing was happening. But one of the psychologists put me on the drug antabuse. Now, this is medication that if it's in your bloodstream and you drink alcohol, it'll make you violently ill, and it could cause your death. And um, so the last six weeks of my drinking, I stayed sober two days to six weeks on antabuse, and I would quit taking it, and I would... Uh, drinking I drink two days to six weeks and it's a hell of a way to live well in 1962 I had to go to Wichita Falls Texas to a wedding and at, a, at the reception after this wedding I was visiting with another aunt an aunt and I walked away from Aunt Sydney and she called out to me she said oh Mary said by the way your cousin Gloria is in AA now she is moving to Houston and she's just doing beautifully when Aunt Sydney called these words out to me, a hush fell over that room at reception, and everything got as still. You could hit, you could have heard a pin drop, and in that moment of hush, something way deep inside of me said, "I am going to be saved." 
that somehow through Gloria and AA I'm going to be made whole again. But Gloria was a complete stranger to me. And uh, you would think I'd been going up all these blind alleys that I'd get back to Houston, get in touch with Gloria, get in AA, and everything would just be fine and dandy. But I had some more drinking to do. But after several months, I did get in touch with Gloria, and she says, Mary, you are an alcoholic after we talked about two minutes. She had diagnosed me, and that was the first diagnosis, right diagnosis I had ever had. And I knew she was right. But I wasn't ready to, I couldn't stop drinking at that time. And you know, she talked to me for 13 months before I went to my first AA meeting. And she would just scare the liver out of me. She'd say, alcoholism, it's progressive, it's incurable, it terminates fatally. And she says, as an alcoholic, you have three choices. You can get covered up in the cemetery, you can get locked up in the jail, or you can get sobered up in AA. And I, that was terrible too, you know. And I'd say, well, Gloria, I've never been in jail. I've never been involved in an accident. I've never been in a mental institution. She said, well, honey, you just keep drinking and these things will happen to you. Well, in 1963, our youngest son went away to school. The other oldest one had gone five years previously. And this was a dysfunctional son. He had, he had experienced the last five years of my pathological drinking. And he didn't want to go to school, and he didn't want to work. His daddy got him a job, he didn't want to work. He wanted to join the Army, and, you know, he hurt his knee. He wanted to become a paratrooper, and he hurt his knee, and that was that. So all he wanted to do was get out of that man's Army. But anyway, uh, when he first went off to school, this was the first time in all of my drinking that I hadn't had somebody coming in to monitor me. You know, they'd have to come in and check and see if Mother was drunk so the kids could play in the yard with them or they could make airplanes or something. And this is when I nearly drank myself to death. I drank solid for three weeks. And it was during this last this three weeks period that I tried to commit suicide in a blackout. And instead of being grateful that I didn't die, I was outraged. <laughs> I took the attitude that if I was going to kill myself, I wanted to know about it. I didn't want to wake up someplace dead one of these days. <laughs> and that's when I got on the phone and I called Gloria. And I said, Gloria, I need help. And she said, yes, honey, I know you do. She said, we had been fooling around about this long enough. And that was the night that Gloria and Lee made a 12-step call on me. And my, they made it on my husband, too. But he didn't know it. And... Uh, while I was waiting for them to come in, I hate to tell this part of my story, but I'm going to, I always do it. While I was waiting for Gloria and Lee to come out, they were going to be a little late. I was wishing I had energy to comb my hair and brush my teeth and get cleaned up a little bit, but I didn't have that kind of energy. And uh, so, let's see, where was it? Anyway, oh, this is what I hate to tell. During some of my drunks, I was just an out-and-out slob. I wouldn't brush my teeth, I wouldn't comb my hair, I wouldn't change my clothes on some of my drunks, not all of them. And my husband is such a fastidious alcoholic that he even takes showers during blackouts. <laughs> to me, that is revolting. <laughs> But Aldous, you, you can imagine how it worried him that I didn't take a bath, didn't clean up. And, oh, he just couldn't stand it. So one day he made a fatal mistake. He decided he was going to give me a bath. 
<laughs> Incidentally, I'm a born and bred Texan. That's why I have this Texas twang. Uh, anyway, when he took me in the bathroom and locked the door, I didn't know he was going to give me a bath. And when he started undressing me, I sure didn't know he was going to give me a bath. When he got me completely undressed and shoved me in that shower, what a letdown. <laughs> I came out of that shower like an old wet hen, and boy, he, he'd pushed me back, and it was pushing shove for a while, and finally he got in that shower with me, closing all. <laughs> And he was holding me, he was standing behind me and told me, he was trying to soap me. He, he said, by God, I'm going to give you a bath. And I said, by God, you're not. And I started kicking and kicked out all three sides of that shower. I just demolished that shower. And the next day he was trying to build it back. And he said, Mary, I'll never try to give you another bath. I said, that's wise, boy. <laughs> but three, two or three weeks later, the boys were out on the back porch and they were... They were grumbling. All the kids in the neighborhood had something to do but them. And they were just bored to death. And one of them said, I wish something interesting would happen around here. The other one brightened up and said, Say, maybe Daddy will try to give Mother another shower. When I opened the door for Lee and Gloria that night, they were the prettiest sight I have ever seen. First of all, they were clean. They were smiling. They were happy. They were sober. And whatever they had, I wanted. And we were visiting in the den, and Lee caught my attention. Now, Lee came out to sponsor Lenard, but Lenard didn't want a damn sponsor, believe me. And he caught my attention, and he said, Mary, if you could have one wish granted you tonight, what would you ask for? And without a moment's hesitation, I said, I want peace of mind. He said, you want serenity. And I said, oh, yes. And you know, we were told in the promises that we will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. And I have been given this to a certain extent in this wonderful program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I start in AA, and I stay sober 90 days. It, on December the 23rd, 1963, I was going to Travis to get my... 90-day chip, and my mother-in-law came to see us during Christmas, and she's enough to get anybody drunk. <laughs> but um, my husband came in that evening uh, with a fifth of whiskey under each arm, and I woke. I started drinking in a blackout. I don't remember. The next Christmas Eve, I woke up drunk. Everything, alcohol spilled all over the floor. Smelled like everything was in a mess. And it was the first Christmas my little grandson had come to spend Christmas with grandmother, and grandmother was drunk. But I got through AA, I got through that day, and, leaked, and I started back in AA, and stayed a hunt, I stayed sober 108 days this time. Now, this dysfunctional son had joined this army, and like I said, he couldn't be in a paratrooper, so all he wanted was out of that man's army, and the army had different ideas than he did. And every time I turned around, Roger was home AWOL. And after so after six or seven times, when I said, I'm going to call the MPs and have him pick him up. Well, this was terrible for him to say something like that. Anyway, in all the hubbub and everything, I started drinking that last time. And I drank for two days, both times that I drank. But I don't ever want to forget that last sobering up. 
Oh, my God. I tried to taper off a little bit on Tuesday so I could go to Travis on Wednesday and get my, my night, you know, start back in AA. And I don't ever want to forget that horrible day. And all through the day, Gloria would call me and stay in touch with me. And I'd tell my kids, say, honey, don't drink. Honey, hold on. And I'd say, all I have to do to get rid of this nightmare is to drink two beers and it'll go away. But I also knew that day if I drank two beers, I would never sober up again the longest day I lived. And so that evening she came in from work and uh, she couldn't find in. My husband had to work that day and he had to teach school that night. He taught blueprint reading to the apprentice at the apprentice school. So anyway, Gloria couldn't find anybody to come take me. My club was 20 miles away through pretty heavy traffic and uh, I wasn't able to get my car and drive to a meeting that night. And Gloria got back in there and talked to me, and she says, Mary, I'll tell you what you're going to do. She said, you're going in your bedroom, and you're going to get down on your knees, and you're going to ask God to give you the strength to get to an AA meeting tonight. And she added one more sentence. She said, and he will give you this strength. <clears throat> and that was the night I borrowed Gloria's faith. And I went in my bedroom and I got down on my knees, and all I said was, Dear God, give me the strength to get to an AA meeting tonight. Now, I didn't know it at the time I knelt in that most sincere prayer of my life that that was the moment that God started healing this shattered woman. Because from the time I rose from my knees, I have never had a compulsion to drink. We got down to the Travis Club that night, and I didn't want to walk in and face all you people. I'd gotten drunk twice, and you know, when anybody gets drunk in AA, everybody knows about it. It's just like the beat of the tom-tom drum out in the jungle. Everybody knows. And I balked when we got to the door. And if, we, if Gloria hadn't been by my side, I never would have walked in that door. But she took my hand, and she says, Honey, this isn't the end. It is just the beginning. And we walked in the door. And it was truly the beginning of this AA life as I know it today. But when I, when I had started taking the steps and I started looking at myself, oh dear, one of the most glaring things wrong with me was I was on, I was too sick. I was unable to give love to any of you. I was dead inside. And it just worried me. You loved me and wished me well and I sometimes didn't even like you. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And her glorious standard words were, pray on your knees, go to meetings, read the big book. I heard that a thousand times, which it finally penetrated. And uh, anyway, Gloria gave me a great big stack of grapevines. That's our monthly magazine that's mailed to us every month from New York. And it has different stories in there for about eight eight people. And there was a man out in California that was so he felt just like I did. He was dead inside and he couldn't give love to anyone. And I bought him he borrowed a prayer from a man that's in some place and I borrowed it from him and every night when I'd go to bed I would say, Dear God, give me a small love to give, a small understanding and a small love of which I might be worthy. And I don't have to tell you that prayer's been answered a thousand times over. And I didn't know who this guy was that was keeping me sober 24 hours a day. The, the, the God of my childhood was not the one I wanted in AA. 
And I was trying to find God so diligently, and I, I wasn't doing a bit. I was just meeting a blank wall, I thought. And Gloria said, talk to people. You know, just talk to everybody. Lord, I wouldn't talk to anybody. I wouldn't even say the Lord's Prayer till I'd been sober six months. I was too scared to. And uh, But in reading some on the grapevine, I read something by a 17th century philosopher named Pascal. And all it said at the bottom of a page, limbed in black, was fret not thyself. If you had not found me, you would not seek me. And I, something happened to me when I read that, and I, and I thought, you know, if this old guy is right, let's read this again. Fret not thyself, if you had not found me, you would not seek me. And I knew right then that I had already found God or God had found me. It doesn't matter which, but this was the beginning of a slow spiritual growth in this woman. I didn't know how to live one day at a time, that little simple thing, just live for today. I was always going to live when the car was paid for. I was always going to be happy when school started or when school was out. I did not know how to live today. And I read something that Carl Sandburg wrote. He's wrote, Life is like an onion. You peel it back one layer at a time and sometimes you weep. Well, don't ask me why, but I could, I could start doing my life that way. That I could peel it off one layer at a time just for today. And you know, it works, and I seldom ever weep. Isn't that wonderful? When I married my husband, I made the greatest mistake of my life. Not because of him, but because of his mother. <laughs> she was all, she, he was her only son, and she was possessive, she was neurotic, and she hated me with a passion. She was a barracuda. She was a pit viper. I could do nothing to please that old woman. Everything I did was criticized. And I hated her with a passion. Incidentally, I have outlived her. Isn't that wonderful? So I gripe about this old woman, just gripe and complain. And Gloria had had enough of it. She says, now Mary... If you don't quit hating that old woman, you are going to get drunk. And that was the first and only time she threatened me with getting drunk. And I said, now just how am I going to do that? And she said, well, you're not going to like it. <laughs> I said, well, tell me. She said, you're going to pray for this old woman. And I immediately said, the hell I will. But she added another important sentence. She said, you're not going to pray for this old woman for her sake. You're going to pray for this old woman for your sake. And I didn't want to get drunk. And I tell you, so I went in my bedroom. And this was one of the hardest things I have had to do in my AA life was to pray for that old woman. And I have a special place by my bed that I say my prayers. And when I got ready to pray for this old woman, I got clear around this, this corner, clear around the foot of the bed, clear around the other corner, and way up in the back of the bed, just as far as I could get. I didn't want to contaminate my good praying place. <laughs> and I got down on my knees, and all I said was, Dear God, you know I don't mean a word I say. But you bless Ethel. And at the end of my prayers every night, I got to say, bless Ethel, bless Ethel. And 
I don't know, eight or nine, ten months ago, I don't know, one morning I woke up and I knew something was different and didn't know what it was, and it took me a little while to figure it out. But that was the day that I no longer hated that old woman. God had taken away this hatred and resentment that was eating my breakfast every day. And uh, she never changed one damn bit. (laughs) But she didn't have to. I am the one that had to change. Now, I'm just doing all the good. I have learned to love. I have learned to pray. I've learned to live one day at a time. I have learned to forgive my enemies. And 28 days after I took my last drink, my husband came into AA for his sake. And he has been sober 30 years last May the 19th. <laughs> Thank you. I'll tell him you clap for him. He'll be he'll like that. <laughs> and um, so anyway, uh, he does his AA and I do mine though. But uh, people would walk up to me and they would say, Mary, it must be just wonderful. You and Lenore are both in AA. Well, you can just have your own AA meeting. (laughs) I want to punch them out. We can't even agree on the preamble. Like I said, he does his AA his way, and I do my AA my way. And uh, But my husband is a fishing nut. He is a fishing addict. He went fishing in Alaska, just got back Labor Day for salmon, and we don't even like salmon. <laughs> but anyway, any time he had any time off, we went fishing. And I didn't get to see the hills of Rome or the Eiffel Tower or anything like that. I got to go fishing. But I like to fish. And one day, we, we'd been sober about five years, and he was on vacation, and we'd been fishing for three days, and he had beat me for three days in a row. Now, that's unheard of. Y'all just don't really know it. <laughs> so uh, at night, he said, are you going to go fishing with me in the morning? And I said, heck no, boy. I can find something better to do than that. Well, the next morning, I opened the gate for him to pull the boat out, and he said, you sure you don't want to go fishing with me? I said, yeah, wait just a minute, let me get my fishing hat. I ran in the house real fast and got my fishing hat. That's the most disreputable fishing hat you ever saw, and I love everything about it. And I knelt down real fast by the bed, and I said, now, dear God, protect my home from tigers and let me beat Lenore catching fish. (laughs) Well, we were fishing out there, and I had him beat. We fished a couple of hours, and um, I had him beat, and I said, Lenore, let's go. <laughs> and uh, he said, No, nope. I'm not going to go yet. He's about to catch up with me. And I said, Lenore, let's go. And he said, No, I've got to beat you or at least break even. And I said, You just forget about that, boy. And he said, What do you mean? I said, Well, when I said my prayers this morning, I asked God to get, let me beat you catching fish. He gave me the meanest look. (laughs) He took his hat off and threw it in the boat, and he says, Now, Mary, by God, that is dirty poo. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you, I have been given such a good life in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I love everything about it. 
And Gloria told me, said, Mary, if you don't give your sobriety away, you might not keep it. So I started sponsoring women and leading meetings and starting meetings and talking at meetings. I started doing everything I could. Now, I do know that God gave me sobriety, but the quality of my sobriety is up to me. I can't sit on the back row and have quality sobriety. I've got to be active. And I have had the best time working with these young women. They are a true joy in my life. And um, when I was drinking, I'm going to tell you about my picture and then I'm going to close. When I was drinking, I wasn't, I'm still not interested much in uh, anything material. Uh, incidentally, you know, I told you what a slob I was when I was on some of my drunks. I just love to get all foo-fooed up in AA now. <laughs> but anyway, um, I'd been sober, I don't know, maybe a couple of years, and a friend called from Wichita Falls and said she'd like to come to Houston and shop for Christian in China. I just, uh, I couldn't understand anybody doing that. And uh, I went in and I told my husband, I said, isn't that the silliest thing? Virginia's going to drive 500 miles to buy Christian in China because these things meant nothing to me. I just didn't drink out of a fruit juice, grapefruit jar as a piece of crystal china. It's just not that important to me. And incidentally, I don't like to shop. My husband doesn't know what a little treasure he has in me, does he? <laughs> Well, anyway, Virginia came down and I took her to this department store, brand new opening. Oh, they had beautiful crystal and china in there. And I said, now, Virginia, you just shop to your heart's content. I am going in the furniture department to sit in a chair. It took me over two years to recuperate even a little bit from the damage I did to myself with pills and alcohol. And as I turned to walk away from Virginia, way at the back of the room, there was a picture on the wall and it was a picture of roses. And that was the prettiest picture I have ever seen in my life. And I started toward that picture. I was drawn to it just like a magnet. And the closer I got to it, the more beautiful it was. And I, when I got up to it, oh, I had never seen anything as beautiful in my life. And I looked at the price tag, and it was $139. Now, this was 30 years ago, remember. And... Uh, we didn't have $139 then. We hadn't been sober long enough to have anything. But, you know, it wasn't important that I couldn't afford to buy that picture. The important thing was I could want something again. It had been so many years since I had seen something that I wanted. And two or three weeks later, I had to go into a department store for something. And when I walked in, there was a mannequin standing in the door, and it had a black and white check taft raincoat on that mannequin. And... I wanted that raincoat, and I looked at the price tag, and it was $9.95. Well, I could afford $9.95, and it was uh, too big for me. It was the only one they had, though, and I bought it. But it, it had a lining, so I knew I could hem it up. So when I got home with my new raincoat, I started hemming up the lining in the, uh, in the bottom and on the sleeves and everything. And just as quick as I broke off that last thread of that raincoat, I looked out. I wanted it to start raining right then. <laughs> I didn't think it was ever going to rain on in old rainy Houston. You never saw no drought farmer scanning the sky for rains the way I was trying to avoid trying it to rain so bad. But well, one day I heard the little pitter-patter of rain on the foot, and I thought, oh, boy, I'm going to go to Travis tonight, and I'm going to wear my new raincoat. And my garage is attached to my house, so I put on my raincoat, 
got in the car and drove to Travis about 20 miles, and I sang every step of the way. I was the happy. Heretofore, I had been going to AA for therapy, but this time I wanted to go and show everybody my new raincoat. And it was, but it, it, the closer I got to Travis, the harder it was raining. And when I got down to Travis, there was just a deluge of rain. And I opened the door to get out to run in the club, and I saw how hard it was raining. And I got back in my car real fast and slammed the door, and I started laughing all to myself. I had been waiting three weeks to wear my new raincoat, and I didn't want to get it wet. You have just been a wonderful audience tonight, and I want to thank you so much. And I want to tell you that I have an awful lot of nicknames. I'm called Pistol Pete. I'm called Fast Draw. I'm called Hip Shot. <laughs> I'm called Shotgun Mary. But I'm going to close tonight by telling you that because of the grace of God in Alcoholics Anonymous, this pistol-packing mama has laid her pistols down. Thank you.